I think the easiest way to think about elbow pain for climbers is the, the tagline name for medial elbow pain is golfer's elbow. So what do golfers do that give them elbow pain? It's a repetitive thing and they take something in their hand and then they lengthen it under a load and then they snap it really fast. So there's an inherent increase in strain to the connective tissue when you load very quickly. Welcome to the Camp 4 Performance Podcast. This is the official podcast of Camp 4 Human Performance, a company started by Dr. Tyler Nelson to give you the most up-to-date, practical, and usable information on rock climbing performance, training, and rehabilitation. In today's episode, we are covering rock climbing injuries, and the most common ones that we're going to find in the shoulder, elbows, and fingers. We're going to study why they happen, what we're doing in rock climbing gyms and training that might be provoking them, and how to best go about dealing with an injury once it happens. So let's jump right into this episode, chatting with Dr. Tyler Nelson on the things that he does best, rock climbing injuries. Alrighty, so for today's episode, the whole team's here. I'm joined Dr. Tyler Nelson and Coach Gabe Olson, and we're going to talk about common injuries in rock climbing. Dr. Nelson does this literally for a living all day, every day. Um, so let's start off with perhaps, in general, the most common injuries that rock climbing sees as a sport, and perhaps the most common consultations that you've been doing recently, and what they tell you about what climbers are doing these days that they could be doing a little bit better? Mm, I would say the most common that I manage are finger injuries, but the most common climbing injury is shoulder injuries. So typically front-sided shoulder pain is, I think, statistically number one in terms of incidents and climbers and just overhead athletes in general. Gotcha. Um, and why might you see that that often? Why are shoulders number one? Um, I mean, it, it has to do with like the, the long head of the bicep mechanism and just all the overhead stuff we do because climbers spend a lot of time overhead when they're climbing. Climbers spend a lot of over overhead time when they're fingerboarding. Climbers spend a lot of overhead time when they're doing pull-ups. And so there's just a lot of repetitive movements that happen at the joint and, you know, the mechanisms of the joint um, certainly lead to rotator cuff types of pathology, uh, primarily because they have a really bad lever arm at the shoulder, but the shoulder in climbing scenarios gets put under a lot of stress. Gotcha. I actually kind of did a video today. One of the things I tend to talk about a lot is after assessing so many climbers and running through the assessments, um, it's pretty notable that when you grab a handle or a jug, like the number is normally significantly higher too. And at least in the demographic that I see, I think climbers tend to just be on their fingers, maybe only or all the time. And they kind of forget how strong the elbow shoulder group, the poles tend to be. So if you can kind of imagine doing a pull up with your hands wrapped around a pull up bar, you can probably do a little bit more than just on a edge of your fingers. Cause there's a limitation that kind of means that the shoulders need a higher minimum stimulus use to actually see strength gains and whatnot. Um, 
And I just kind of highlight that with a lot of people when assessments, like, look at your fingers, let's take about 80 or so percent of that, you know, that's your minimum to get strong, but look at your shoulder and elbow. It's way higher. So if you're on the your fingers, if you're on the wall the whole time, ideally with your feet on the wall doing well, you're not really seeing a lot of stimulus that would strengthen a shoulder, so to speak. Is that right to say as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at the moves people do, the hand is pretty far from the shoulder in a lot of ways especially with like big compression moves. If your feet cut, that's a really big lever arm. And for people that tend to be, you know, let's say predisposed at doing well at rock climbing, they have even longer lever arms because they have big ape indexes. And so it definitely puts a huge load to a shoulder. And if that, the muscles around the shoulder intentionally, like the deltoid, um, the coracobrachialis muscle, the lat, the pec, like, you know, those muscles certainly are the primary and the upper trap. Those muscles are primarily the real stabilizers of the shoulder. And then the rotator cuff kind of has a, an important role in just like keeping the socket, you know, the ball and the socket close together. But certainly they need more intentional loading than climbing provides. Gotcha. For sure. So if you're hearing that, climbing is good, but it's not everything that the shoulders needs. We need to spend some time doing actual shoulder and you know elbow specific stuff. Gabe, were you about to say something? Yeah, just to add on top of that, I would say like from my experience, especially for like youth climbing, like the injuries that I see would be those same type of things, but you're going to see it in the shoulders and the elbows of kids, not really their fingers because their fingers are so strong. Like I'll put people on a hand board or kids on a hand board that will do as many pull-ups or have the same force production on that edge as they will on a full jug and that just because they often don't actually pull as much and so like when they're doing those big like giant dinos or drop moves and they you watch them cash right out and they can't actually hold any flexion in their arms you kind of see why their shoulders take the brunt of it is because they actually can't actively engage and they just kind of smash out um so I think it all, yeah, it makes sense that we underload some of those pull muscles, even in the youth, or they just haven't gone through puberty enough where they really have, um, you know, that, that pulling strength yet. So. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, the few youth athletes that I've tested to, that's where you kind of see the numbers a little closer together. Or if you're like a beginner climber that has been attracted to fitness through climbing, that's another scenario where I think you're going to see the shoulder strength and the pulls all kind of a little closer together. And then your potential to grow is huge, but necessary if we're really going to strengthen those things and be protective about that. So we'll stay on the shoulder for a little bit here. And how would we go about training the shoulder to be stronger, especially this rotator cuff muscle? I think it's a really big buzzword in the, maybe the YouTube climbing world. Um, are the, you know, yellow bands, you know, flying around at the elbow, always the answer. How can we talk about that? Well, I would maybe add one more thing to like the injury risk. I see a lot of climbers maybe having susceptibility to front-sided shoulder pain, certainly from climbing, maybe not from training, but also from doing a lot of movements that are very repetitive in their mechanics, like push-ups and dips and full range of motion pulling, like those what happens when the bicep muscle gets engaged, the lat kind of shuts down because they compete with each other because the bicep flexes the shoulder and the lat extends the shoulder. So the mechanics actually influence. And that's why the top range of motion of the, of the pull-up is so hard. The bicep is in a really short position, but essentially can't really do the job because the lat's trying to pull into extension. So there's a 
whole bunch of reasons why we get more mechanical stress to the front side of the shoulder where the bicep head attaches to the labrum and the incidence there is very high in climbers that have labral tears. And that does not mean that climbing is creating all labral tears or that it's climbing is a bad thing necessarily, but we just see that as a really high incidence. And that's definitely part of the problem is all those, you know, mechanisms combined. It's certainly not just one thing. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. There's always a piece of the pie. Um, and we kind of been talking a little bit about, you know, strength training, doesn't always have to look like your sport, especially to be beneficial. I think that kind of fits there too, is when it comes to the repetitive nature of movements being one of these factors, it's really good to make sure that we're creating some movement variability. So maybe horizontal pushing, pressing, different angles, different intensities, um, and not things that look hyper-specific to the sport to stay away from the repetitive nature that may be risky for us. Yeah, and maybe, maybe not to be so rigid too with exercise selection. You know, one of the easiest ways to get a bunch of comments that are maybe annoying to read is to do a bunch of like partial range of motion pull-ups and people will be hot and bothered about that, you know, because there's this idea that you have to stop fully with your arms overhead and stop fully with your chin over the bar to complete a successful rep. But from from the exercise science standpoint, in a lot of cases, it makes sense to not do those end ranges of motion, right? And so I think people in general can be less rigid about the exercise itself and really trying to understand what you're getting out of it, obviously, is, is really important. I mean, yeah. even trying to convince an athlete to just do the concentric portion of a pull-up and step down yeah. is the most painful thing, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. Full range motion or doesn't count, bro. <laughs> Range terrible. Well, with the yeah. with the exercise bands, like I think there's good justification for using those in some cases, but you can also consider that in some cases doing them consistently is essentially pre-fatiguing a muscle that you're going to use not in isolation during your climbing session. So mostly for like tendinopathy management, I like the idea of intentionally loading a muscle in general, supraspinatus is very commonly injured with some sort of load, whether it be a rubber band or whether it be a dumbbell or an isometric against something where you're actually getting a consistent load of that muscle to make sure we get the tendon load. But as soon as like the, the load is, is adequate, the pain is gone in the shoulder, trying to isolate all four rotator cuff muscles each time before you climb does not really make sense because you are putting a level of fatigue on the muscle then you expect that muscle to contract very quickly in an isometric fashion from different positions, I would consider that risky in some ways because then it's not going to have the same motor control that you need for the climbing movement, right? So I think it's just kind of a, it's not that it's a good or a bad thing, it's really that it has a very important purpose and beyond that, it can be problematic just because the dosage becomes excessive. Right. Yeah, and I always tend to pick on it a little bit um, just because it's kind of fun these days because you can get some people riled up, but it does have its time and its place. Absolutely. Um, I just tend to see some people who are very healthy, very strong, like it comes out right away. And it's like, if they don't do it, they're like, oh, can't climb today. I did not you know, have that. But it kind of speaks to helping people filter out their warmups and save them some time and some fatigue where they can just kind of skip that. So for those people, you know, the walk to the gym was, you know, quote unquote, just as stressful as those bands. Like you can kind of skip that and go do something that's going to save you time, fatigue, and get you a little better prepared. 
Um, yeah. Well, so would that fatigue be on the same sense of like, I just talked to an athlete today who's just like, oh yeah, I mean, I can't go climb if I don't roll up my chest and my shoulder beforehand because it hurts too bad when my hands overhead. No, or my, and I'm like, well, I mean, rolling it out is just helping with the pain, the numbness, but you have a bigger problem. Like you're just doing that every time to get your hand over the head. Well, we need to adjust <laughs> where your hand's going over and uh, take care of some shoulder and some chest problems instead, you know, but yeah, a hundred percent. Even my working with runners a lot before, like, Oh, I forgot to stretch. That's why my calf went. I was like, no, 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 no. Like stretching is not good or bad, but it's probably because of something else, a, a strength issue, a mismanagement of your mileage over the weeks issue, all that kind of stuff. And I think, yeah, because they always kind of use that as like the scapegoat where it's kind of easy. Oh, I didn't roll. Oh, I didn't stretch. But we have to look. And I said this maybe at Grasshopper a while ago where, you know, the person with the 45 minute warm up that doesn't really feel ready for climbing doesn't need an extra 10 or 15 minutes in a warm up. They need to look at the 364 days before that. And like, why do you feel the way you do? And it's probably more likely your training plan, your volume and a combination of all those things rather than a 45 that should be a 60 minute warm up. Yeah, and it gets tricky when people have like a routine. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's easy to be superstitious, superstitious about like the way you warm up and you climb. And <clears throat> so I would say if, you know, if you took a high level athlete that's performing well and they have this long warm up, then I would say they're fine to do their warm up. There's, there's really not enough evidence to support that, like, you know, exercising the rotator cuff a bunch before you train is risky necessarily for any sport. Um, doesn't make sense to me, but I would say the place where it maybe becomes problematic is if people have a pain complaint and they use that as an intervention they assume that that's preventative and I don't like the idea that you know people can assume that they just need that and then they can do whatever they want and then they don't have to worry about what's going to happen to the shoulder then it becomes a little bit you know problematic from that standpoint but ultimately doing that kind of exercise is not enough intensity to really train the shoulder in a more comprehensive way so even if they were you know using an exercise band on a regular basis, they still would want to incorporate some form of strength training. Right. And so strength training, we've talked about in a few other episodes before, something that's relatively close to your maximum effort. And these things can incorporate like bigger movements like chest pressing, rowing, pull-ups, multi-directional, heavy and slow, because we want to create a robust body that can handle and then translate all the strength into you know, your climbing skills and sport. Um because a lot of climbers are super strong and they deserve to be lifting heavy as such to help stimulate those things. Um, and that's always, like, your, I always think, you know, your best rehab. So as big as like a good training plan, there's no, I've heard that from a lot of like ACL prevention, this or this, that, and there's definitely nuance to the etiologies of injury um, that are, should be spoken to. But I think a lot of people just miss the big getting strong component too, and, and being healthy there. Right. So let's navigate downward, might as well, to the elbow. What is the most common thing that you see or or we see in the rock climbing population regarding elbow ouchies? Uh, I would probably say medial elbow pain. I see a bit more than lateral elbow pain, but both are very common. Um, I see a lot of medial elbow pain, certainly right off the medial epicondyle, which is kind of where what people call the funny bone. Um, Sometimes it will present with numbness and tingling into the pinky, um, which is distinct from carpal tunnel symptoms, which are more thumb and uh, thumb and index finger 
uh, pain, but those that comes on from the same reason, right? If the statistics on climbing, shoulder injuries are number one, elbow pain is number two, risk factors are climbing volume. And so a lot of the same logic and, you know, fallacies, let's say, happens to people with elbow pain as does shoulder pain. A lot of the same movements are very repetitive. I think the easiest way to think about elbow pain for climbers is the, the tagline name for medial elbow pain is golfer's elbow. So what do golfers do that give them elbow pain? It's a repetitive thing and they take something in their hand and then they lengthen it under a load and then they snap it really fast. So there's an inherent increase in strain to the connective tissue when you load very quickly. And if the load is very quick and the load is not super high intensity in terms of the mechanical stress of the tendon, that will create a bunch of strain to the tendon. And it will make it more efficient, at, but at some point it's going to increase the risk factor. And so again, when climbers you know, get really um, into their routine and they're very enthusiastic about going regularly and they're going all the time, that's kind of when those symptoms pop up. But it's really tricky because when the symptoms pop up have very little to do with when the injury actually started to happen, which is a real, real tricky thing for people to understand. Yeah, I think I had a video today talking about what I, the two like basic mechanisms of injury. And we always tend to talk about load versus capacity. Um, and I talk load as in the external physical demands that are coming at you from a lifting standpoint or a sports standpoint you know, the force that the, the world puts into your body or the running puts into your ankle or the holes put into your fingers. And then your capacity is like your strength plus your tissue tolerance and a lot of other things. But that kind of helps guide the conversation as far as I've been able to help with, you know, when we run into things like, you know, the foam roller situation or, oh, I got hurt because I didn't stretch. I was like, how are these things going to address one of those two components of the equation and they kind of have a little bit of light bulb go on like oh okay and it's not that again stretching is bad or foam rolling isn't going to help in some capacity but ultimately when it comes to injury we have to be monitoring and understanding load and how load can change with speed and mass and all that kind of stuff and then how capacity can change how do we buffer our capacity but then like Tyler said the onset of the injury is very it, it doesn't mean it happened that day it could have been coming on. And we always talk about the straw that breaks the camel's back and better understanding that. And that kind of correlates with this one little graph I love from Stuart McGill, where like you can just see the, the line kind of slowly slide down over time. Your tissue tolerance kind of drops and it could be mismanagement of fatigue. You're not sleeping well, nutrition, not training, all those kind of things. And eventually, you know, your climbing continues or it get, maybe gets a little harder, but even if it continues and your tissue tolerance is slowly coming down, that little blip where they intersect, you know, that's kind of where it was coming, but it was coming a long time before that. It wasn't like that moment. And so that's what we're, I believe, speaking to is that how do we understand this larger picture rather than hyper-focus on maybe what happened that day? And that's where people are like, oh, I didn't stretch this one day out of 30 days. That's what it was. There it was. I just need to stretch more where it's a little bit more complicated, but simple than that. Yeah, I think I think focusing on the day that maybe they felt it, but also the intervention that they're going to do to fix it, I think is also a bit of a fallacy because, you know, expecting any one thing to be particularly 
special for fixing an elbow complaint is very misleading for people. And that's why people are so confused about what to do. But from my personal experience recently, I've, I'm quite frankly sick of my office. I spend so much time here on Zoom and then in my office training and like, I love my walls and my holes, but I am sick of climbing in there. And so I've been going to the gym lately. I have a membership at two gyms here. And like, it's amazing because I've climbed three days in a row automatically I can increase my volume because the holes are way bigger. Right. And so it's really oh, yeah. easy for me to see right away how people get medial elbow pain at the climbing gym, like, because the holds are big, the moves are powerful. It's not really that hard on my hands. So I can do quite a bit of it in a session and it's ridiculously fun. But if I add on top of that, now I'm going to go do some fingerboarding and some finger training one of the most commonly injured portions of the tendon that I see when I ultrasound elbow pain is the superficial finger flexor that the medial head actually attaches to the medial epicondyle, where the deep finger flexor, the FDP, does not attach to the medial tendon at all. So the common flexor tendon also has, you know, portions of the superficial finger flexors when you're half crimping. And so because like I have all this volume now with my climbing, lots of compression, lots of locking off, lots of volume. And then I add on top of that some intensity with the fingerboarding. That combination is a recipe for getting tendon pain. And my elbows are, are more sore than they have been in two years in the last couple of weeks, right? And I've only done it for a couple of weeks, right? And it's kind of a cool experiment to just see, but very quickly I can tell like that's definitely part of the reason why people run into elbow pain so commonly. That's interesting because yeah, I don't know if you can kind of talk to us about um, setting style because, you know, shout out to the setters, like the awesome video you said with like, they're trying to make you own a skill and learn a skill. But at the same time, this is interesting to hear that maybe the nature of commercial climbing has some things to consider to keep us healthy as we engage in the gym climbing. Yeah. Well, I mean, even the, like as a setter and, and been commercial setting and all that stuff too, I think the population that those holds are targeting are also the ones who are often most under trained kind of too is that like the big holds and those powerful moves tend to be beginner to you know until you're climbing on v4 or 5 you don't not, you don't get to those smaller handboard size edges where you're getting on 30 mil or less for most time or if you are you're big on your feet and so it might be kind of you know both sides you need to have the big holds so people can climb on all of the terrain but the big holds and having them be able to climb on all of the terrains lead to more volume and more dosage and everything like that so i don't know if there's you know it's not the setter's responsibility to you know tell the climbers when to stop but it mm -hmm. is their responsibility to allow them to climb on the walls provided right and mm -hmm. the holds and give them the moves so yeah it's it's kind of a it is an interesting topic to kind of see where it lies because I mean, the people who probably need the most help and rehab with injuries are the setters. Like mm -hmm. talk about people who do a lot of climbing, a lot of stress from super easy to extremely hard long days repetitive with the, the drill alone will blow their elbows up, you know, and just like all above your head, always pushing in like those guys are continually injured and often needing help and rest and recovery. And I think sometimes it's the responsibility of gym owners to give them time off and give them time to, you know, pay them to stretch and prepare themselves and, and to take time off instead of just go, 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 go 
because that's where the dollar is at. So it's a big topic, I think. For sure. Yeah, they're not just fucking raise. For sure. Also, for sure. Always. Yeah. I mean, they're their product at the gym, right? You know, so it's like you mm-hmm. go to the gym because the holds and the and the and the routes and the and the problems. And so it's like that's you, you can have the nicest looking wall or you can have the nicest training center and things like that. But like we like climbing because we like you know the actual climbs. And yeah. so I feel like the setters are the product, and if they're the underpaid and overworked, it's really sad for our community in general. You know, like so. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a big topic and sensitive. <laughs> yeah, I guess. The, the whole I was telling someone today about how hard the job is because they have a physically demanding job, but like from the standpoint of the community, they need to set comp style stuff for the young kids to keep it interesting. They need to send. They need to try and set hard things for people that like to climb outside, and they need to set things for the commercial population that don't want really small crimps and just things that are fun and interesting, like. Having all three of those things at all grade levels is so hard. <laughs> and so all hard. of those people have really big opinions and they're all thinking sure. that they deserve more of them than the other population, right? You know, so it's it's always the battle of the climbers who are like, oh, we, I want outdoor stuff, make it trainer problems. Then the comp kids are like, I don't go outside, I want comp problems. And then you have the commercial people who are, hey, I just want to get on the walls and I want the cool holds. You know, and all the stuff. So it's it's always a big thing. I think that the nicest group is actually probably the brand new beginners because they're just psyched. You know, they're not really angry at you. You just yeah, you just need to get them on the wall. But everyone else, like V two to V five, there's some temperamental people right there because (laughs) they stay in that range for ten years. You know, if they don't train right. So yeah, no, I was climbing at the Somo Gym here. Have you been to that one, the South Main Mm -hmm. Front? Yeah, on the cool. wave wall. I was like, you know, that's like, I like that kind of style of climbing. And the thing that I've really missed about climbing gyms is all the three dimensionality and my hips have been stiff as hell from my board. And just like, it feels so good to move around, but climbing like the, you know, the V8 range holds there, they're still big, but that wall's massively steep, but they're still big holds yeah. way bigger than any holds I grab onto outside, you know, and totally. just like all that compressive load to the elbows is like, you know, so I think I think people like to bring us back, I guess, to the rehab is people just need to realize that like having the same type of dosage of stress for too often for too long is definitely risky. So I might go climb there tomorrow morning or climb there tomorrow because two days is not that big of a deal, but I'm leaving for the weekend with my wife. And so doing that three days and then doing that for three weeks in a row is probably a little bit risky. So that kind of you know, leads the maybe climber that's not that familiar with what to do is the simplest plan is to like do something different, you know, every other week or do something, do something different every day that you go to the gym and different could mean different wall angle, something that simple, right? Cause it's going to have a different skill set. It's going to put different stress on different parts of the body. That's a really easy way to think about the simplest finger or the simplest training plan is to just to do different stuff. Mm-hmm. That's really good. I love that. And even, <clears throat> Lightly touching on like your hip situation is exposing your body to different three-dimensional space is going to help you kind of stay variable where, yeah, if you're kind of stuck on the same degree angle wall, your body's like, well, I don't need hip frog split mobility because I'm on this steep 45 degree the whole time, you know? And so if you're a climber looking to just 
maybe add more tools to the toolbox. Yeah, do more stuff. Not only is it like safe in this rehab complex, but it's going to make you an overall better climber. And then you might get psyched on like, all right, I'm a steep wall climber. Well, now you have more tools to go into that you know, specificity. But otherwise, you can keep the body um, changing and adapting and, and flexible, so to speak. Um, one quick touch on the elbow um, to clarify for the listeners, what is the maybe specific thing that gets hurt the most? Is it the tendon, the muscle? It's usually, it's usually a couple different locations, either where the tendon attaches to the bone or right off that location where the tendon, if it's a mid-substance injury or where the muscle and tendon kind of intersect or technically where the muscle tendon junction is where the tissue, there's a tissue transition right there. So it's usually a transitional location where people will get tendon pathology. Gotcha. Um, One of the things always stuck with me in the early courses learning was things to lightly be cautious about in your early stages of rehab, uh, social tendon stuff like high speed and compressive loads. So can we talk about that? Because for me personally, I had like this medial elbow thing for a few weeks um, and it wasn't getting better. And only because I had to look myself in the mirror and say, Hey, Colin, what are you doing to get this elbow better? And then it was like, nothing I'm like, all right. So I got to, you know, do my own thing, but I could really feel what the most interesting was I was doing, um, like a physio ball rollout and I was demonstrating for a client. So my fingertips are just on the ball. I'm going out into like shoulder flexion and the majority, and that lit up my elbow more painful than anything I could ever do on the climbing wall because I was in like a full stretch and I just felt like that tendon was getting sucked right into it. So uh, back to my ramble is like compressive loads and speeds, if I'm correct on how that influences uh, an angry tendon in the early stages. Yeah, I think with your rollout example, you just increased your lever arm a little bit and put a little stretch mm-hmm. on the muscle. You know, and the, you know, you put your body in a position where the muscle has to just like produce more torque in a bad position. Mm-hmm. So the hardest thing about managing any you know pain complaint, shoulder or elbow, is really that it comes at a cost, right? It's there's there's so many different exercises you could do that would make it feel better that's probably not nearly as important as someone actually committing to not doing all the normal climbing stuff that they're used to. Like that's the really the the hardest part. Mm-hmm. It does not mean that people can't climb. It does not mean that climbing is dangerous. It really just means that for some period of time and some chronic cases of elbow pain, they're real bare to manage. Like when you do enough volume to bring up a really quite present and very sensitized tendon pathology, it's going to take a month, a couple months to go away. Like it's not just. And so the whole attempt at trying to find the quick fix for it or expecting it to go away while they continue to do their normal loading habits is a goddamn waste of people's time. And so many people do that for so long, expecting the best out of it. But Another important point, I guess, is to think that if people are on a climbing trip or you have this elbow pain and you're going on a big climbing trip, the trip of your life, take some medication and go for it. You're not going to really hurt the tendon in the short term either. And so I usually tell my clients for any pain complaint, you know, it's, it's up to them ultimately what they do about it, right? I can't tell people what to do, but the general advice is pain complaints take a while to go away. At some point, if you really want to manage it, you have to dedicate a couple months of your life to getting it to go away and that requires a lot of a lot of dedication and a lot of you know uh, management of their normal training behaviors that's really the crux 
Yeah, I think this year I had the worst case of like medial elbow pain I've ever had uh, lasted a while, but it was interesting how it came for me. It wasn't through climbing. It was, I think, right after I had, I think I had got COVID for the first time and I got hit really hard. And while I was trying to sleep, I found that I would always curl up and compress my arm so bad and that I then was struggling between like trying to sleep and trying to compress and be comfortable because pretty much COVID settled in like my joints, like my joint pain more than anything. So I couldn't ever get comfortable. So I kept getting in this position. I ended up compressing for like multiple days on end that I, it got so flared up and so sensitive that then it pretty much took a month of just like learning to extend my arms out to the side and nerve, do my nerve flossing and take the time and take away the climbing and just take away and take away until I could finally get down the pain and then start to like introduce stuff slowly again. And yeah, I, I at first it was just more mental than anything because I just had to change everything and it felt so slow. But then like once I actually gave that time frame to like allow my body to relax and my, my stress kind of went down, got on the plan, it became easier. But I think the fact that like sleeping was what caused it more scared me because I wasn't in control of myself sleeping. And so like learning to like where I had sleep on my back and like if I had my arms up, it would hurt. If I had my arms all the way straight, it would hurt. So I had to like learn to like lock my fingers to lay them on my like belly button. And that was the only way I wouldn't get hurt. And then slowly I could start to move them, but it took like a couple of weeks. So it's just interesting how everything flares up that yeah, it night, might night not be related. Night splints are pretty common for elbow pain and they're super uncomfortable to wear, but they tend to have pretty good outcomes. You know, for that reason, when the elbows flex, you're just getting a shortened position, you're getting a little bit of compression on the tendon, you know, and so that's another like thing to think about with climbers is people always assume that it's intensity that causes their pain complaint. And so one of the biggest mistakes that people make with elbow pain is they have an elbow complaint and their knee-jerk reaction is to climb easy stuff or do easier things. And they're like, ooh, it's got to be, you know, the intensity. I need to drop my intensity. And that is the worst thing you can do because ultimately what that does is that really just like opens up the door for more climbing volume and really that systemic fatigue and that lack of recovery and all of those things are really the things that we need to be the most hesitant or most cautious with anyways. Yeah, yeah for sure. Another thing um, that I see <clears throat> that I was reminded of with a runner that came in with like an Achilles um, issue that I was actually like that day was listening to a Jill cook podcast on basketball and attendance was that it, the process of rehab can be tricky because you can get to a point where the warm up can really make you feel good, but it's just cause you kind of feel good after warm up because the like, isometrics have like an analgesic effect. Doesn't mean the tissue is then prepared to just handle what you were able to do six weeks ago. And so people will warm up, feel good, do something dumb, wake up the next morning. Like, God, this hurts. I thought I felt good, blah, blah, blah. Um, that's always an interesting one to talk about. Yeah, yeah. The, like, I think the the most common recommendations are like 24 hours later, but the regular 24-hour pain needs to be tracked. And the athlete needs to, my recommendations are usually to do the same stuff because if you can do the same things every day in your warm-up and at the climbing gym, and then you can note how you feel 24 hours later and you can do that for a month. What you're doing is you're 
like relearning that loading is okay. You're creating a new expectation for loading and what you think should happen. And slowly over time, their symptoms always will go down. It's much harder to get someone back to, but they won't feel better. And so the other important thing with injuries is climbers won't feel better until they're back to climbing on their normal routine with no pain. And so they'll feel better, but they'll plateau. And that's very common. And in that case, then they need to start introducing more powerful, regular types of things. And then it gets a little bit more tricky with elbow pain as to how much they can actually tolerate. But absolutely, it's like the absence, the absence of pain is not an indicator of tissue health, you know, as is pain being present, not an indicator of like tissue injury, which is really hard for people to learn. It is. It's tricky. And the body is just pain in general is so complex, way more complex than, you know, a 60 second Instagram video can, can really talk about. Um, well, I think it's so common how many people will train to get out of pain, but not train to get stronger. Right. So it's like uh -huh. the second they, they get out of that pain sensation, then they're like, I'm done. I'm fixed. Right, Mission right. accomplished. And then it's re-injured again. You know, it's just like, just because you stop feeling pain doesn't mean you're suddenly healthy or you're stronger. Like you got to continue the road a little longer, you know? So, yep, absolutely. And then the same goes for people that just only rest. They just stop doing absolutely everything and the pain kind of goes away and they're like, Oh, I'm good. I can go again, right back to the thing that hurt me that I wasn't physically prepared to do well in the first place and expect different results. Like, should we be, you know, doing something in the rehab process as soon as possible to be loading and like safely and intelligently communicating to the tissue, like, Hey, this is, it's time to start to heal in this direction. Yeah. I think, I think one of the most helpful things that I tell people is it's hard to make big changes in your normal routine and emotionally, it's really stressful for athletes to stop doing what they love. And so if your normal routine is to go to the gym and climb this many days a week, you see the same people, that's kind of what you love to do. You still want to do that as much as you can, but you have to change the way you interact with the climbing wall or interact with your sport. And you need to modify those things, but that still gives you some relationship with the sport, allows you to still have your emotional self intact, so to speak. And then they can, because ultimately if it seems scary to get back on the wall and climb, this is a really important for finger injuries. At some point, you have to climb. So at some point, whether you want a fingerboard to take time off for a month or so, at some point, you have to get on the climbing wall. And so I like the idea of keeping people on the climbing wall sooner than probably most people do, primarily because then they keep that relationship and they get feedback on how it feels to climb and that they know it's safe and they know it's okay. And then they can start introducing harder and different styles of climbing, which is very different than you know the, the rehabilitative style ultimately. So I like the idea of, you know, having, because the value that someone puts on the exercise largely dictates the outcome. You know, if we give someone that's a climber, a bunch of random shit to do, and they don't like doing that random mm -hmm. shit, not going to help them. Even if they do it, they're going to be pissed off the whole time. And they're not really going to understand the relationship, why they're doing it. And it's just not going to help. And that's very well studied in the rehab world. So I think finding ways to keep climbers <clears throat> up the wall and keep them in their sport is a really big deal. Absolutely. I think the most important part about all this, like, it's not just about the thing. It's about the human in front of you that you're trying to help manage this process that is physical, it's social, it's emotional. That whole thing has to be spoken to, to do, you know, quote unquote, rehab well. So 
sliding down the extremity. Let's talk about fingers for a little bit because we can go on this topic for a long time. What are the common finger injuries that we tend to see in the rock climbing world and maybe anything in particular you've been seeing recently? So maybe add one more thing just um, hmm? to the end of our conversation. There's like take technically the physical stress, the exercise is the easiest thing to manage. Like, and if people stop and think about that, they're like, yeah, my emotional stress is kind of hard to manage. My job stress is hard to manage. Sometimes it's hard to sleep. Like how much I do at the gym is pretty easy to manage. Like that's the stuff that you have the control over. And so you want to take charge of those things that you have control over. And then that's going to give people so much more empowerment for getting Mm -hmm. better, getting on top of their complaint for sure. That's a very good point. Yeah, I think one of my favorite quotes that I heard recently was the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. And I think I like that because it's true. Like if you can keep people in the activity and essentially playing and being involved, they're happy. And it's and they don't really they understand that sometimes like work can still be like training and working can still be enjoyable, but it's when they do nothing and they sit yeah. and they dwell the fear and that's like suddenly when they're not doing anything, they get depressed. That's where it's hard to get out of. And so I, yeah, I always thought that was a good, good stimulus. The other thing I was going to comment is uh, I always find it a little scary, maybe sometimes with youth athletes or, or I guess anyone, if you don't kind of teach them how to slowly get back on the wall with guidance or supervision initially, because I find it sometimes leads into that give a mouse cookie thing where like you let them on the wall a little bit and they're like, Ooh, I can do this. Maybe I shouldn't do this. And then they kind of rush and you're like, no, 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 just just do just pump the brakes a little bit longer here and just because you can do one thing without pain doesn't suddenly mean you can jump to this whole other thing and do it without pain yet so i think sometimes it might be get them on the wall but still give them time frames or or guidance um definitely with youth athletes i think you have to do it because they're psyched and they just want to get back out you know for sure the parents parents need to be involved coaches need to be involved i'm in the middle of totally helping um, a youth athlete locally here that has two stress fractures in his finger. He's been climbing on it for a year. And like coach knows what they're doing too. Just didn't notice, didn't say anything, kid didn't say anything, right? And so, but the parents, if the parents are aware of what's going on, the coach needs to be aware of what's going on, then that's definitely the the pathway that that is the best practice just so the coach knows too. But yeah, giving kids advice and letting them go is super dangerous. <laughs> Hell, I'm guilty for that. Like, I can be like, oh, I feel good. Diet off. Ah, shit. Uh, back down. You know, so. It's just so fun. <laughs> it is. To me, how, how much of a little person I feel like when I go to the gym and climb gyms, that's a good, so much fun. <laughs> it is awesome. Yeah. So thanks, setters. Give them a fucking raise, gyms. Agreed. Yeah. Damn it. 80% <laughs> of the revenue share. 80%. <laughs> Easy. Minimum. Yeah. Uh, again, if we go on the stats, the A2, number one, A4, number two, A3, number three. So just in terms of incidents. And then with youth athletes, it's always, um, you know, the what used to be called the Salter-Harris uh, fracture. But um, I think Volker's new classification of that is um, epiphyseal stress. Uh, what is it? Epiphyseal stress response injuries, I think, because even though... You know, because they don't fall under this this general classification of Salter Harris fracture. So it's kind of a semantic thing. But for people that understand what the Salter Harris classification is, 
those bones don't really fall within that because they're more of a, those injuries don't because they're more chronic. So those are still chronic overuse injuries. And so this athlete that I was mentioning that we're managing here locally, he doesn't even full cram. He does mostly three finger drag. He still has the same injury that's very commonly brought on by the full cram. And so with adults, adults don't, won't get those kinds of injuries because their bones are fused, but kids won't get poly injuries for the most part either. They can, obviously anything can happen, but it's just way more likely that they will get stress responses in the bone because the bone is rigid. And so that's another reason why A2 and A4 pulleys are more common than any other pulley injuries because they're bigger and stronger, but they attach to a rigid structure. So the A2 is the biggest, it tolerates the most stress, it's the widest, uh, I mean the longest, and then the A4 is less narrow, but it still attaches to a rigid structure. So those are the ones that will actually isolate and rupture. Gotcha. Uh, just, just curious. Did that? Does that uh, kid who has the stress factor who does a three-figure drag? Uh, is he mainly a comp climber? Uh, I think so. He has not been climbing very long. I think he's been climbing maybe I think two years. He climbs B nine, B ten. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think he's that's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. crazy yeah, right? fifteen-year-olds, nine and two years old at two years of climbing. That's crazy. Because like fourteen to six-year-old boys pick up a dumbbell and it comes with a bicep. It's crazy. <laughs> they grow. They get so really strong so fast. Uh, the one thing I think I've seen the most that I think is an interesting topic is not only like the route setting and like the finger injuries, but uh, I think a lot of the finger positions and stresses are influenced so much by the hold shapes now. And the shapes have gotten a lot of interest, or like, or like pretty interesting of like, you know, they've got so big and, and, and how they grab in the fiberglass is really weird that some of the three finger dragon competition scene is like one of the most popular positions It's because of how the jibs get screwed onto the volumes and like, they'll come, they'll be in a drag, but they'll still be oh. putting a ton of pressure based on like the jibs or the sharp edge lips that are at the end of these slopey volumes. Or right, so like, I found like the jibbing, the modifications of holds and like some of these large features to, even though they're a sloper, you hold them right on the very lip with oh, these drag positions. With yeah. Hmm. And so I thought I've been looking at that a lot lately and yeah. I went to a camp uh, the summer in um, Atlanta and I could just see all of these kids, like the amount of three finger drag that was just prominent. And the only ones who did that position were like the ones who were also solving those specific colds and jibs, you know, and like there, it was just really common that it's kind of been on my brain lately of like the modification of holds could be another thing we should kind of look at um, or to think of, of like what, what's that's what that is doing to a dragged position. The thing that I love, the thing that I love about that is how adaptable people are, even kids, right? No one's teaching. Totally. They just do it naturally. No way. It fucking sucks. I'm going to use this. You're like, it's so yeah. cool how dynamic like our system is for doing what's optimal for the system, right? Which is so mm. cool. oh, yeah. about yeah, athlete. That's pretty well researched in the lower extremity too. I love the funniest how... adaptable. Oh, oh yeah, no, no, sorry. The <laughs> last thing I was just saying with that is the I think the funniest adaptable one is you'll have these giant volumes and everything on them. And then the kids will be like, these holds suck. And they'll crimp into the quarter oh, of yeah. the volume. Nasty. And so it's like a three mil <laughs> nasty edge. You're like, of course you did. You know, so like, that's how you solve the problem was heinous, like crimping a screw head, you know, type of thing. You're like, <laughs> so that's... they're going to, they're going to use whatever. 
it's super interesting because I want to bring up something there, but I was a quick comment on the new finger courts. I love how you mentioned the dynamic systems stuff because I've been enthused by that for a long time. You always going back to like the Bernstein and the, the blacksmith studies and how variability comes out like dynamic systems theory rather than like, you know, because like you said, there's no such thing as like a, like a half crimp in our brain. Like you just kind of do it. And then your body kind of adapts to it, which is really fun um, to dive down that rabbit hole. So that's a motor skill rabbit hole we can talk about in their day. But another interesting thing on the comp climbing, which I think should be brought up is, as for coaches trying to understand how to apply all this physiology to your demographic, because like the moves kind of get crazy, right? Especially with like the horizontal traversing jumps. Like, that's a huge different move. Like only you're going to see outside if you fall, kind of. And like the shadow matching you kind of brought up the one time, Gabe, where you have to like have one hand in and pop out, catch another one, like crazy. Like, cause you can get really creative as a human being applying to this, but it's not necessarily historically there to know how to train for. Yeah, the climbers know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> They're better at matching than anyone, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Little kids can match anything you give them it's it doesn't even matter at this point it's it kind of insane so you have to like that's one of the reasons big holds have come into play for them is that they just can't actually match the little chips or crimp anything so you start to give like these small kids huge slopers just to help separate the field and get them more body position instead of just hey i can pull on this little crimp and you know, their wrists so then that's why we get a lot of wrist pain in climbers but when you were talking about the finger Stuff that makes me, you know, maybe a point to remind people with the dynamical systems, like, you know, let's see, you mentioned half crimping. There's no like perfect half crimp, but every time you have crimp, it's slightly different. Oh. It's really subtle, but it's slightly different every time. So the intention with the training, when we talk about finger training stuff, we want to like remember that the training is not the sport and the training will never directly transfer to the sport because of that reason where we want to actually get more of our coordination and our dynamic like uh, coordination and what skill set on a climbing wall than we do on a fingerboard. And we want to kind of isolate that tool for what it's good at. And that's quantifying things, overloading things, et cetera, but not too much, put too much value in its ability to give us something back on the climbing wall too. Yeah. We don't have to <clears throat> pigeonhole ourselves with that because that the study always comes back to the anvil study where, you know, they're swinging a hammer and they have to just make contact on the anvil to shape the metal. And back then, like amazing, they were able to do these arc and trajectory studies. And essentially the blacksmith that had the more variability in the arc and trajectory was more successful at making contact at the thing. So the people who had like the same trajectory overlapping missed more often. So well, it's good to have this kind of variability because at the task you get better so it's very easy to see in golfing if you kind of track the head of the golf even though they look pretty good it's going to be subtle and then like tyler talks about in the course like if you go inside the brain it's way different every time like little tiny flashing lights are all changing there's no such thing as a the mouth noise we give an exercise or a whatever it's your body's in the moment way of accomplishing the task so yeah, don't get stuck on like, we need to do this thing and it has to be this way. And rah, rah, rah. No, like you're, you you want to guide the human to doing it well, successfully, often and healthily, health, healthily. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think what, well, I think with the lower extremity stuff too, with ACL injuries, they found that being too rigid with prescription and being too rigid with trying to teach someone how to move actually reduce their ability to be dynamic. 
Mm-hmm. And so especially for, you know, climbers where things are weird all the time with the climbing holes that we have, being too rigid would reduce your performance in the long term, which also is another thing to consider. Absolutely. So for the fingers, I guess to tail that off is when, you know, we get her in general, because we don't have maybe time to talk about the exact pulley versus pulley or all the other things that we go into in the courses. Um, but what should we be looking to do? Someone hurts your finger, they're calling to talk to you. What are your general? I think a lot of times people know a finger injury is on its way. It's not common where I hear people like I had no pain in my finger and I was at the crag and I was grabbing onto this thing and I repositioned my butt underneath it and it popped. Never have had soreness before. That's not common. It's very common for people to have some sort of lingering thing that's stuck around that they paid attention to, that they haven't maybe addressed, that they've been able to climb through as well. Like I scanned a couple of boulder plate injuries this morning on a climber that's been climbing on them for years. But it's very obvious they have a big swollen knuckle and a slightly flexed finger. And the the, the thing that's amazing about our bodies is there's so much connective tissue in your hand. Climbers can climb with pulley injuries and finger injuries for a really long time without significant pain, without significant strength loss. But it's just like this slow, arduous thing, right? At that time, those are the hardest to manage. Chronic finger injuries are way harder to manage than acute finger injuries. Acute finger injuries, especially ones that are ruptures, are very obvious. Put a splint on it. Don't do anything for three to six weeks. Slowly start to load it. That's a that's a um, um, a win-win situation. People that have had it for you know three or four years and now it's swollen and it's not getting better. Now I want to address it. That's a totally mm. different, harder story to manage. You know, so it really is a case-by-case basis um, for a climber. But in general, for acute injuries, the the typical scenario is, you know, splint. If there's a rupture, it's very common to happen at the, you know, base of the finger. Those need to be splinted and, you know, rested appropriately. The same thing with kids with stress injuries. Kids with stress injuries, they'll just present with a big swollen knuckle. It will not happen overnight. It'll have happened for months in advance, but they won't say anything. And then they'll automatically note that there's, you know, someone notices or they tell someone those absolutely need to be x-rayed at a minimum diagnostic ultrasound, maybe an MRI, you know, depending on the athlete, but it really is kind of, those are the more difficult case by case. I would say it's probably um, more risky to climb on a finger injury than an elbow injury and a shoulder injury, you know, simply because the tissues are smaller, but ultimately all of the forces that we're putting on the climbing wall go through the fingers too. So the same amount of forces go through the joints, but the joints of the fingers are considerably smaller. You would still prescribe those are the very highly specific cases. And then in general, kind of like referring back to the elbow and the shoulder, there is some form of something we should be, you know, moving forward strategically, intelligently doing when it comes to like early loading and not just taking four to six weeks dead off. Like overresting is also not very useful. Yeah. I, I mean, I would think the recommendations that we made for maybe the shoulder or the elbow at some point, we said, Having more variability in your climbing makes sense. Um, you know, spending all, all of your climbing time on the wall on a moon board is not reasonable, you know, or any board for that matter, just because the moons are very jumpy and they're very grabby and twisty. You know, those types of loads are more risky, we can say, than just loading your fingers, right? The finger has evolved to grab onto round things. So if you're grabbing onto something that's 
relatively open-handed and you have good coverage and support of your finger, I would say for most people, the load there is zero, you know, even with a finger injury. Um, and so making sure that if someone develops a sore finger and they're like, I don't want this to turn into something worse, if they don't seek someone's attention and they kind of want to do the DIY thing, they have to modify how often they're doing normal climbing. And if let's say they're climbing four days a week, maybe they go down to two days a week, the other two days they use a fingerboard, which is considerably less risky because it's slower, it's heavier, it has more control, right? And then play that out for a month and see what happens to the finger. That would probably make most people's finger injuries less sore. And then also using bigger edges, just in general, I think, you know, I would say one of the primary culprits behind finger injuries, kind of like elbow pain, is a bunch of big holds on, oh, I guess this is for finger pain, a bunch of bigger holds on climbing walls and then getting fatigued and then going and doing a bunch of heavy fingerboarding on a fixed edge size, you know, so a 20 mil edge doesn't really cover any adult's finger, their DIP joint, right? And so there's that stress also on top of it. So it's it's very uh, multifaceted finger injuries for sure. Cool. No, oh, I love that answer. And, you know, you principally need to identify first, but you have to communicate to the tissue like, hey, we want you to feel good and continue to adapt because your body's going to be adapting right away. Um, but ultimately, even saying those those principles and, you know, not resting forever and then expecting to come back, you know, you have to, if you're really curious and really want to do it, see a professional and understand that these things are multifaceted and that the three best things you should do for an A2 poly injury that you found online are not useful. Unless you read it from Dr. Tyler Nelson's websites. And well, uh, I mean, it's even hard to read anyone's website and say, oh, that's me, which is a shitty way of communicating just on Instagram in general. But mm -hmm. Like even another mistake that I see with people have finger injury, they want to try and isolate that finger and try and like make that finger heal quicker, load that one in isolation. And I usually tell people that unless you're used to doing single finger training and mono training, that's probably more risky than it's worth because now you're putting a, a load to one tissue that you're used to, you know, partnering up with the rest of the fingers. And so it's much harder to quantify and justify loading one tissue because now you might be overloading all those single pulleys on that one finger instead of just like dispersing the load to the hands right where i think we've maybe talked about this on another podcast um but i've met multiple usa or not usa but ifsc climbers that have no a2 pulley and they're still climbing at the olympic level with no a2 pulley right they had a pulley rupture at one point the pulley went underneath the tendon they were suggested to get surgery. They had the option to not get surgery. If it didn't hurt, they didn't need it. Stopped hurting. They were climbing on a finger with no AT pulley. So the other, the, maybe we mentioned this with the elbow pain too, is the caveat is, is obviously the athlete's decision. So I have a lot of climbers that will be like on the trip of their life and they have a sore pulley or they have a ruptured pulley and they've been kind of nursing it, right? I usually say, it's up to you, but if it was me, I would probably tape it and climb on it because the long-term consequences of a short-term thing on a finger, especially if you've been climbing it already, are not huge. But with the caveat, at some point when you return, you have to take, you know, three to maybe two to three months where you actually get that thing to heal down and, and become more tolerant of climbing stress. So, you know, Finger pain and finger injuries are not a dead stop to climbing, you know, for sure. 
but it is very much a case-by-case -case basis because climbers are so transient nowadays with their schedules and being able to go on trips. Right. Absolutely. And that's always, yeah, number one thing I've seen in feedback is building it into their practicality. And so that's why going to see someone to help you actually do that from a professional standpoint, very useful. All right. I mean, but that gets that's a, I talk about fingers all day long. So I yep. <laughs> but we should, we should talk about maybe, maybe everyone's favorite exercises for shoulders, elbows, and wrists, like mm -hmm. as the, maybe an end, end one for this. That makes sense. Gotcha. Some things to do. Hmm. Favorite shoulder training exercise is uh, 120 degree ISO pull, <laughs> bar pull, fixes oh. elbows and shoulders. Kind of wrist all. too. <laughs> yeah, I was just to say. I <laughs> like, um, I think it's kind of like applicable and easy to access for a lot of people. It's like a side lying uh, abduction hover. So if I'm on my left shoulder side, I'll have my right arm in front of me with like a weight or something. I'll just kind of hover it. So I'm creating that isometric thing but i, I kind of see a lot of and it's inspired because a lot of gaston moves that are big lateral oh. movements yeah so yeah so you're on your side you're kind of holding it like here so if i'm standing i can just get a cable and i can just do an abduction hold um but i see a lot of people like ooh, i don't want to like go out and do that move because my shoulder i'm like well have you ever like trained your shoulder and so it's a little bit more specific in line with the tissue but i think that one helps a lot of people get stronger but also gain confidence Especially moving laterally so it's probably more yeah. mid, like middle deltoid yes yeah yeah okay middle lat yeah okay okay so yeah i would say shoulder <clears throat> i think i think one of the most for shoulder pain i see probably one of the best exercises is doing like a bench press isometric mm -hmm. you know because it is a really easy way to load a heavy bar or or load the shoulder heavy but even if the athlete is not comfortable lifting a load, they can just do a pin push. They can do an isometric, you know, um, lifting the load is good, but definitely this position is a really strong position at the shoulder. Um, same thing with like a barbell isometric right. gate, mentioned the 120. Yeah. I'd like those, I'd probably do 90. So it's less overhead. So it's like kind of horizontal to the floor. Those work really well. I like, I think Gabe showed. Yeah, I was just, yeah, I was just going to say, I really like actually a horizontal row more than just actually like bending over. Like if I can get it in a seated position, like that really helps me like staying upright. Like I feel way more confident and, and also just, you know, it's less coordination than finding they're, you know, not compensating with everything. So I would say mm -hmm. horizontal row might be one of my favorites for sure. I also like, like um, the dead press. That I've seen Tyler do. I've been using a lot, a lot of like high school athletes just to get them out of initially like this crazy, really bad bench pressing chaotic form. And then I'll just have the pins start at like their 90 or just above and just, all right, you're going to push up, you're going to come down, hands press. off. I call it, I, I call it dead press because it's like a deadlift. <laughs> I like so, that. I kind of like that name. It, yeah, I just, thought that was your name. Isn't that the actual name? I don't know. Huh. Maybe I got it from Colin then. Oh, I've called my, it, yeah, I was going to say, I've been called it a dead press. It's fine. If you're listening, you're a patent attorney. Write it up. There we That's go. Right. It is the dead press now. Anyone's, I'm on Instagram. Well, I will watch press. it. I call it the donut press. Donut press. There That's right. <laughs> Um, cause I think it's cheaper and I kind of got that if I'm like the passive, you know, I want, I don't want people initially getting into all the elastic tension going through. I was like, I need you to learn how to actually generate force and recruit your shoulders appropriately. And for any high school athletes that are kind of like baby giraffes at that point, it's super safe. Cause anytime they get hurt, it's like, that's the thing, right? I have a friend who's 
son's a really competitive soccer player and he calls his son a baby giraffe <laughs> is that a thing that people call it <laughs> so i used to be called it all the time because i grew 11 inches in like 14 months so i was so unaided and i got so tall so quick i couldn't like you just run around uncoordinated you're tall you you know you don't have any strength you're a baby that's giraffe funny. that's funny how intuitive that is so i think maybe to recap something push mm. something pull mm. something reduction right but usually isometrics are an easy place to start because they make people hurt less they're easy to set up most people have the equipment um, and they don't attach someone to some small load where a lot of times people using too small of a load will make them feel more sensitive and sore and then they'll be scared to progress which is another limiter for rehab so i think those are good options no all right elbows gabe go even though they're kind of the same I was going to say, those ones I would say are so close, uh, True, but probably yeah. just like an isometric, like maybe a dumbbell hold instead, you know? Uh, yeah, I would say probably dumbbell holds. Those have been uh, really nice because I think I've heard Tyler say something like a, holding a, a W bar and for my elbow stuff, just making sure I'm hitting like hammer grip, palms down, palms up, just to be a little bit more comprehensive with my elbow attack. That's been beauty lately. Yeah, the easy bar works well. I think for elbow pain... Like I like the idea of doing more general things and then intentional things. So the general things would be maybe barbell isometrics, like here, here, and then here work well, but you can do those in lots of different ways, but then do something intentional where you're actually doing the standing, you know, isometric curl and hold or over a bench or with a sling, like doesn't really matter, but then get the load intentionally to the medial elbow. If it's a lateral elbow, then you would do the opposite where your wrist is over a bench extending you know, but but ultimately with elbow pain, you have to get the load to the sore tendon, but the timing really matters. So if people just wake up and they're like, oh, tendon sore, I'm just going to intentionally load it. It's going to be kind of scary. I like the idea of getting the blood to the tissues more and getting more brain activity to more muscles before they start being more intentional. It's, I see that being less sore um, on athletes, but you can do that on the climbing wall too, which is another cool kind of hack. Use a 45 degree climbing wall. And do an isometric at 90 degree elbow angle on a climbing wall with your hands prone, with your hands neutral, and with your hands in a chin up and really address the whole elbow. And that's going to be more emotionally valuable than doing it with a dumbbell, especially for people that don't have training backgrounds. People that love to train, they'll be psyched about the training. People that don't train, they're not going to want to do the training. They want to do something on the wall. Right. That's perfect. The application. And then for wrists, I would say just wear the widget and, you know, cross your fingers. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, a lot of those are the same things, but a little much more fidgety for sure. Yeah. Even the wrist for me, like ever since, you know, getting hurt with Gabe my first time bouldering outside, trying to do that top out of my socks. It wasn't my but fault. I, <laughs> wasn't your fault, but I... I just learned I needed wrist sloper strength. I've never done that. I've always been sport climbing. I was on the fingers, but as soon as my wrist had to flex a little bit, boop, it like dislocated. But just getting more wrist flexion in there. So even with heavy dumbbells, but even in my warm up, I always do this a little grease the groove set on some slopers just to make sure I know how to keep that, you know, together and confident. And it's been really helpful. Especially now that I'm a boulder bro. I literally find myself going out by myself now. You guys have changed me. No ropes. It's so convenient. It is. It is. It is. Their schedules don't align, and I can just shoot out, do it, come home, get back to work. Convenient if this snow would go away. Although we need the snow, but we're getting dumped on hard. I yeah. think we got like nine inches a couple of days ago. So, well, well, in a day. Yeah. 
So. <laughs> yeah, and I'm flying there, man. Let's go to Pennsylvania. It's not bad. It's like weird here. It's just wet. <laughs> so fingerboard, finger injuries. That's easy. Use a fingerboard. Yeah, oh. pretty straightforward. But not so. in the way that. Well, it's funny. I like. I was like, there. I published an article this today in Climbing Magazine, and if you just read through the comments, it's very obvious that the people that are commenting didn't even read the fucking article. <laughs> yeah. And one person's like, hey, I've never done a fingerboard. How would I use the dangler? And one person said, well, Max hangs seven to 10 seconds. I was like, you didn't even read the article. Like, <laughs> this person oh obviously God. has never fingerboarded. And that's obviously stupid advice, right? It's like, it's so fatiguing to try and like educate when people just don't even read and they're just going to do what they used to do anyways. So that is yeah. not what you do for rehabbing a finger, FYI. <laughs> yeah, good Lord. Man, just, just read the article. It wasn't like even terribly long. <laughs> I was just going to say, it was a short article. <laughs> that will help a little bit. Like maybe yeah. that's a good advice, but for someone that doesn't have any idea what to do, that's not good advice. No. I think I always stress to people who do like understand the difference in the hand grips, like, you know, a sloping grip is nice to really get you easy and you can keep your feet on the board, but like hang and modify, find something comforting. Then know that like half crimp gets a little more intense. You know, understand how the intensity progresses naturally with the mechanics and the fingers and know that you just like that guy said, don't just jump on and hang. That's probably a bad idea, but you can get some type of hang, some type of yielding isometric, but modify it. Know how to modify and progress and progress to meet your current needs at that moment. And you're going to have a better time. Yes, for sure. Thanks again for listening to the Camp 4 Human Performance Podcast. Injuries can be tricky, annoying, and frustrating, but they are better with a team. And if you are looking to book your consultation with Dr. Tyler Nelson, please visit camp4humanperformance.com, and the consultation link will be right there. Thank you again for all of your support. It means the world to us. Please remember to share, rate this, and give us tons of feedback. And we would love to build all of these episodes and education around what you're most curious about. Thank you, and we'll see you again next time.